Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today I'm joined by George Canellos, the global head of Milbank's Litigation and Arbitration Group. And this will certainly expand the SEC's powers to obtain disgorgement of ill-gotten gains. It also restores the SEC to a great deal of flexibility in the use of one of their most important enforcement tools. Let's get to it. Intuitively, it feels right for the law to make someone give up profits they made as a result of illegal or wrongful conduct. The purpose of this equitable remedy is to prevent unjust enrichment. Most monetary remedies sought by the United States Securities and Exchange Commission are in the form of disgorgement, that is, recovery of ill-gotten gains from violators of the nation's securities laws. Two recent Supreme Court decisions sharply curtailed that authority. Until now. Overriding a presidential veto, on January 1, 2021, Congress enacted the National Defense Authorization Act for the new fiscal year. Buried in Section 6501 of the Act were a few lines unrelated to military spending or national defense, amending the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 to grant the SEC express statutory authority to pursue disgorgement of ill-gotten gains. With me today to explain the new law and its impact in more detail is George Canellos, who has served in a variety of senior positions at the SEC, most recently until 2014 as co-director of the Division of Enforcement. George, thanks very much for taking the time to get together today. My pleasure, Alan. We've just seen a kind of a surprise at the end of the year when the veto of the defense authorization bill was overridden. Tucked into it was a small provision with respect to the SEC that may have major impact with respect to their disgorgement powers. Tell us a bit about that in the background. So tucked into an extremely lengthy bill dealing primarily with defense spending was a rider that amends the Securities Exchange Act to grant the SEC relief from two very significant rulings by the Supreme Court during the last four years. And this is a big deal for the SEC. I mean, if you just look at the, the most recent year-end 2020 report, uh, disgorgement was 75% or about $3.6 billion of the total uh, money monetary remedies that the SEC uh, collected. It's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a big number. Yeah, and I think this will, and this will certainly expand the SEC's powers to obtain disgorgement of ill-gotten gains. So that number is probably likely to increase, and it also restores the SEC to great deal of flexibility in the use of one of their most important enforcement tools. So for background, George, you mentioned that the new law in part reverses some of the constraints to the Supreme Court in its two recent cases in 2017 and 2020 put on the SEC when it was seeking disgorgement. How did the court rule in those disgorgement cases? The first ruling in a case called SEC versus Kokesh uh, was one in which the Supreme Court held that the SEC's claims for disgorgement of ill-gotten gains arising from violations of the securities laws were subject to a five-year statute of limitations. Up until that point, throughout its history, the SEC had taken the position that its power to obtain ill-gotten gains from those who violate the securities laws was an equitable power that had no statute of limitations. So if the SEC discovered a problem or a course of conduct that had lasted for year, many years or even decades, it took the position that it could disgorge all of those ill-gotten gains 
in a, in a proceeding and courts had nearly uniformly agreed with the SEC. So the Kokesh decision essentially was uh, it consisted of the Supreme Court disagreeing with almost all of the lower courts that had addressed this issue. So in that sense, it was quite significant and it basically curtailed the ability of the SEC to go after ill-gotten gains for conduct that was more than five years old. So, And after Kokesh, we have then another case, the Liu case, uh, just last year in 2020. How did that change the rules? So in the Kokesh decision of the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court explicitly reserved judgment on the question of whether disgorgement even qualified as a form of equitable relief. And that reservation was explicit and contained in a footnote. And the suggestion was that disgorgement of ill-gotten gains, one of the most important weapons in the SEC's enforcement arsenal, may not be even a lawful remedy available to the SEC. And let's just pause there for a minute, because a lot of the powers the SEC has are created by statute, the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 in this case. And there are other things it does, disgorgement mainly, which are not, or at least up until this point, have not been expressed in the law in a statutory way. They've, they've, they've actually been a creation of its equitable relief powers to district courts of, within district court discretion. So, so what does the court do in lieu to kind of address that problem? The courts have statutory authority to grant equitable, any equitable relief for the benefit of investors in any action brought by the SEC. So the question presented in lieu was, is disgorgement of ill-gotten gains an equitable remedy and hence authorized under that general statute that authorizes district courts in SEC actions to grant any form of equitable relief for the benefit of investors? Okay. And what did the Supreme Court say in lieu? The, the answer was that Disgorgement of ill-gotten gains is not a traditional equitable remedy, but the SEC may, in effect, be able to extract ill-gotten gains from defendants in actions brought in district court if the SEC can properly invoke a traditional equitable remedy. And so the court's saying, essentially, if you look at the list of traditional equitable remedies and you look back to the courts of equity of a bygone era, you don't see a cause of action for disgorgement of of ill-gotten gains. Instead, you see an action for a range of other types of equitable actions, such as an equitable lien on proceeds, a violative conduct involving, say, misuse of someone else's intellectual property. Or you see accountings where a fiduciary has misappropriated assets entrusted to the fiduciary's care. There's an action for an accounting an equitable accounting in which the fiduciary is required to account for its use and handling of assets under its its management, but no equitable right of action for disgorgement, per se. Now, in a lot of those cases, I would think the Supreme Court has in mind the idea that if I steal a bag of money from you, the SEC comes in or you know somebody comes, the government comes in and says, hey, you can't have that bag of money, you stole it. They take it back and it's supposed to go back to the person who was harmed which is different than how discouragement traditionally is used, where the money doesn't necessarily have to be returned to the harmed investors. It could be held by the Treasury. Yes, the, the remedy of disgorgement, which had been recognized by almost all lower courts before the Lude and Kokesh decision, had been one in which first and foremost, the court had the authority to strip 
anyone who violated the securities laws of their ill-gotten gains. And then the court had discretion and often did take that money and award it to victimized investors. But in many cases, the courts were not able to identify the victim investors. And in many cases, there were no victim investors. The violative conduct involved rather technical violations of the securities laws and allowed a defendant to profit without any investor suffering loss. So if you no longer had the authority simply to strip the the wrongdoer of his ill-gotten gains, you instead needed to fit your argument into a traditional equitable cause of action. And that greatly limited the SEC's authority to bring actions for disgorgement of ill-gotten gains. So this combination of limiting the SEC's ability to bring enforcement actions with disgorgement as the remedy and the statute of limitations limits that Kokesh introduced that prompted Congress to act uh, here at the end of 2020, amending Section 21D of the Securities Exchange Act in a way to make this basically clearer going forward? How to, is it different than the earlier law? Is it, is it, how does this change the rules? Yeah, I think that the, the, the headline is it's different, and it's, some, it's different in some respects unknown, different in ways that are going to be required to be sorted out by lower courts. The key changes are as follows. First, the SEC is now allowed explicitly to bring actions in district court to require disgorgement of any unjust enrichment by the person who received such unjust enrichment as a result of a violation of the securities laws. That's the statutory language. Now the SEC has an explicit statutory right of action to seek disgorgement. And that, I think, makes clear that the SEC is not restricted to traditional equitable causes of action. Instead, it has its own newly created cause of action called a disgorgement. So after the Lew decision by the U.S. Supreme Court last year, what is it that the SEC couldn't do that it used to do? Before the Lew decision, the SEC would seek ill-gotten gains against groups of people who together violated the securities laws, and they would seek the remedy jointly and severally. That means that if you and I perpetrated a violation of the securities laws together, you got most of the money, but we did it together, and you are now bankrupt or you've left the country and the SEC was unable to charge you, I would be charged and I would be responsible not only for my own gain, but also your gain. The Supreme Court made pretty clear that that was not consistent with traditional equitable principles and wouldn't be authorized. So before the Supreme Court's decision in the Liu case, how did the SEC calculate the amount to be disgorged? Generally speaking, the SEC would seek the highest possible disgorgement number it could seek. And what that meant was if a defendant in a securities action made certain gross proceeds, like let's say they charged a commission or they charge an asset management fee, and there was a violation of the securities laws, in, the, in their conduct or in their execution of their services, the SEC would generally seek disgorgement of the entirety of the gross gain without giving any credit for any of the costs, for example, the cost of employees, salaries, the cost of running the, all of the machinery required to execute a trade. Instead, they would seek the gross gain, not the net profit. So it seems to me there's a tension between the equitable approach, where to be fair to the wrongdoer, 
uh, the only amounts subject to disgorgement are the net profits of the wrongdoing, compared to an approach the SEC clearly would prefer, where the gross proceeds of the wrongdoing are all subject to disgorgement, which would seem to serve the congressional intent of the securities laws uh, better to deter this wrongful conduct and protect investors to protect the markets. Again, the Supreme Court suggested very strongly in the Lew decision that gross gains are not the standard, that net profit should be the standard, and that eliminated a very significant amount of the potential disgorgement that the SEC uh, had previously been seeking in cases. So that raises a couple of questions. I mean, for one, unjust enrichment is not defined expressly in the new law, and these ill-gotten gains, this idea of a net versus gross uh, the joint and several aspects in, in lieu, if those are derivative of the idea that the court had that this was a type of equitable relief, do those limitations still apply now that the SEC has a statutory right to seek disgorgement? So uh, unclear whether any of the limitations contained in the lieu decision apply. The language that Congress selected in the new statute suggests that some elements of the lieu decision, some of the restrictions on the SEC's authority may still exist. For example, Congress used the terms, not dis, didn't just use the term disgorgement of gains, they used the term disgorgement of any unjust enrichment. And so it uses the word enrichment, not gain and not gross gain. Furthermore, it's, this language is required to speak that the SEC may, the court may require disgorgement of any unjust enrichment by the person who received such unjust enrichment as a result of a violation of the securities laws. That implies that the SEC's former practice of seeking disgorgement jointly and severally against wrongdoers who acted in concert may not be available to them anymore, may not be a remedy that they are able to seek, because the statutory language strongly implies that this is person by person defendant by de defendant award, not one that allows the SEC to lump together everyone and just say each person's jointly and severally liable for the misconduct of others. So the language does seem to preserve that limitation, but other elements completely unclear. So does the law now clarify the amount subject to disgorgement, gross proceeds, or just a net profit from the violative conduct? You know, the SEC used to seek gross profits, sort of an open question whether unjust enrichment can be a gross profit number or a net profit number. And it's also unclear to the extent that it implies something net since it uses the word enrichment, which sort of connotes you got richer, you have more money as a result of the violation. So if enrichment cannot connote something net, it still leaves unclear what expenses might be appropriate. For example, if I'm running, uh, if I'm engaged in some course of conduct that requires me to hire others, am I allowed to subtract the salaries of the others that I had to pay, even though those salaries might have themselves been paid and funded through ill-gotten gains? Or am I stuck on the hook for the gross profit, for the gross gain, uh, and it's on me that I chose to use some of that gross gain to pay others to engage in the course of conduct. And what about the applicability of this? Is it retroactively applicable? What did the statute, the new law say about uh, what's covered by this new statutory power? On the face of the statute, 
the act would authorize the imposition of an award of disgorgement in any pending or future action that's brought by the SEC and would subject the new claim to the new statute of limitations. And that means that it, on its face, is retroactively applicable. The language here is that it applies to any action or proceeding that is pending on or commenced after the date of the enactment of this act. And that is a very unusual statutory provision. Both Congress and the courts apply a strong presumption against retroactive application of legislation. In the context of criminal statutes, it's illegal to retroact to create new, new, new criminal prohibitions and make them retroactively applicable. That violates the ex post facto clause. When it comes to civil regulatory statutes, it's disfavored, but it doesn't violate the Constitution. So the courts will only retroactively apply a new regulatory statute if Congress makes its intention unmistakable. And so there may be some room for debate, but on its face, it would appear that this new statute is retroactively applicable. So would the statutory authority for the SEC to seek disgorgement only of unjust enrichment limit the SEC in any other way? Pre-loop, the SEC would often seek pretty creative application of the concept of ill-gotten gains. It was an undefined, you know, equitable concept. For example, the SEC would, from time to time, take the position that compensation for work performed on an hourly basis, for example, an accountant's performance of an audit, or compensation measured as a percentage of assets under management, like an investment advisor's fees for managing client assets, or compensation based on a fixed commission, like a broker's receipt of a transactional fee, could be entirely subject to disgorgement if a violation of the securities laws occurred during the performance of that work. So, you know, the defense argument would be, I got hired to do an audit. I devoted dozens of people to doing this audit. We got paid on an hourly basis. There's no question we did the work. And almost all the work was fine work just because there's some flaw in the performance of the audit by some people. Does that really make our entire audit fee unjust enrichment? Prelu, the SEC would frequently argue that it's a gross gain standard. They would also frequently argue that the real purpose is to disincentivize misconduct. And so when in doubt, the SEC erred and the courts tended to err in favor of the larger number. Not clear that unjust enrichment takes place when, for example, an audit firm actually performs the work, gets paid on an an hourly basis, and then afterwards there's some flaw in the audit discovered. And that would hold true for the other forms of compensation that I described. So the use of the word unjust enrichment in this statute, not yet interpreted, potentially does unsettle or limit the SEC's authority to seek disgorgement. Uh, in the con- in contexts that it used to seek in go- disgorgement for. So the Kokesh case comes up with this five-year statute of limitations. How does the law uh, change that? So so the new, new law makes, in addition to creating the cause of action for disgorgement, it makes that cause of action for disgorgement subject to different statute of limitations, depending on whether there was fraudulent intent or scienter involved in the conduct. For conduct that involves fraudulent intent, the courts say that the cause of action 
has a statute of limitations of 10 years, allowing the SEC to grab ill-gotten gains going back 10 years from the time of the commencement of the action for actions arising from other violations of the securities laws, those that require merely negligent misconduct or strict liability violations, the statute of limitations is five years. So could that change in the statute of limitations and that Santa requirement in the new law affect the way the SEC handles investigations or charging? Definitely. The line between a negligence-based violation and a fraudulent intent violation is actually very gray. The courts, in interpreting what fraudulent intent means, uh, what scienter means, the word the Latin scienter, they have tended to make clear that extremely reckless conduct, even if it isn't intentional, satisfies the scienter requirement. And so the line between someone who's grossly negligent or even negligent and someone who's reckless it is not necessarily always so clear. And in many cases, there can be an argument that someone acted recklessly while there is a defense that they merely acted negligently. And when when the statute of limitations and the scope of relief greatly turns on whether the defendant's conduct may be framed as reckless versus negligent, we can expect that the SEC may choose to be, in a number of cases, more aggressive in seeking to argue that the conduct is reckless in order to take advantage of the longer statute of limitations. You know, this is coming in here at the end of end of the year, the end of the old Congress, the end of an administration. If you look forward, what do you think that, if any, impact would have on the SEC's pattern of enforcement and its emphasis on certain types of, of cases or market protections than others? There, there are kind of two consequences. Because this uh, new legislation in some ways restores the SEC, the authority that the SEC had up until 2017, th- these are not really novel powers that the SEC has. These were powers that the Supreme Court curtailed between 2017 and 2020. And now Congress has given back some of those powers, a significant quantity of the powers that the SEC used to exercise. So I don't think that it necessarily suggests that the SEC is going to be going in a completely new direction or that it has a brand new toy that it's going to be, you know, that it's going to be experimenting with in the next few years. I think it's just um, a source of relief to the SEC that they uh, now don't have to live with some of the restrictions contained in the in the Lou and Kokesh decisions. As I said, one consequence is the SEC may be more aggressive in seeking scienter-based charges, and scienter-based charges can have a lot of collateral consequences for defendants and respondents. So one unfortunate consequence of having a statute of limitations that turns on whether the conduct is scienter-based is that it might create an incentive for the SEC to more aggressively seek scienter-based charges, even when the SEC itself would otherwise be satisfied with negligence-based charges. And by seeking scienter-based charges, first, they're more inflammatory. There's more of a stigma associated with those charges. So it might have the effect of unfairly branding people who really engaged in negligence-based conduct as having engaged in fraud conduct with fraudulent intent. And also, Cases involving fraud have have collateral consequences, like some forms of debarment exist under the law only when the charge is one that involves fraudulent intent. So 
there are other harsher collateral consequences that people may be exposed to if the SEC were to aggressively on the margin bring fraud cases where it used to bring negligence-based cases. Do you think the new law might change the behavior of people under investigation by the SEC? If you are under investigation and you know that there's an argument that you engaged in negligent conduct and you're fearful that the SEC may try to frame your negligence as fraudulent intent by arguing that you engaged in reckless conduct, you might be actually very incentivized to grant a waiver of the statute of limitations during the pendency of the investigation to ensure that the SEC isn't caught in, in this terrible dynamic where the only way they can get the remedy they want is to allege that you engaged in fraudulent intent. So you might actually proactively want to toll the statute of limitations on a charge against you, even in an early stage of investigation, in order to give the SEC really neutral incentives when they're making charging decisions. Good. Well, George, thanks very much for taking the time today to explain it all. Alan, thanks so much for doing this and take care. You too. Thanks very much, George. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Millbank Conversations. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at millbank.com.